I'm Paul Garabedian with my Many Screens Big Picture podcast. Phil Donlin, how the hell are you? Paul, I'm doing great, and it's awesome to be on your show. It's great to see you. We haven't seen each other in a while. I know you're traveling. You're in Chicago. Tell us a little bit what's going on uh, in Chicago right now. Yeah, I uh, booked this great role on a highly anticipated star show that's coming out called Power Book Force. And I don't even, I should know the number, but I'm not totally sure what the number is. it four? I think so. So uh, it's the one that stars uh, Joe Sikora, who plays Tommy. So it's a spinoff of Power that was on, I would say, I think they went like seven seasons, something like that. Mm -hmm. So here in Chicago, shooting that series, I'm recurring on the show. So that's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I get to, I get to work with Joe. Joe's a, a, an old pal of mine. I've known him since probably been 18. We've written some scripts together. He's a, he's a good old pal. So, uh, yeah, so in Chicago and, uh, shooting this show. Cool. Well, you know, I look at your bio, which you sent to me, which is quite extensive. And I said, uh, when we were offline that to really do your career justice would probably take two hours here. So we're going to condense this into 20 minutes or so, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, Read from your bio a little bit. So Phil Donlin is an actor, director, writer who hails from Chicago, where he is right now. Phil started on the stages of Chicago with the Galid Theater Company, which he founded and was artistic director. So you certainly have uh, certainly a grounding, a, a foundation on the stage, which is most impressive. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But you've also worked with Steppenwolf, an incredibly well-known theater, the Organic Theater Company, Looking Glass, Wisdom Bridge, the Blank Theater. And is it EST or EST? How would I say that? EST. So EST. Ensemble Studio Theater is what Oh, very good. And, you know, this is interesting. Your favorite stage role was as Eugene O'Neill's son in the off-Broadway production of O'Neill's Ghosts at the Barrow. Most impressive. So let's talk a little bit about working on the stage, talking now about your at the acting component of your career, because you're a director and writer as well. But I've always said, like, for me, it's just awe-inspiring to see someone on stage, memorize those lines, go up night after night, live, on stage, without a net, basically, and perform. So are the butterflies, if they happen at all for you, and are they good to have the, the nerves are they more intense when you walk onto a movie set where you're, you have the camera there, you have other people on set, but you don't have a live audience? Or is it much more intense when you know tonight or in an hour you're going to be live on stage in front of an audience of people? Yeah, definitely. I would say, well, one, you should always get them. One of my acting mentors slash teachers over the years, David Proval, he always said the nervousness, the butterflies, all of that remind you that you're alive, that you care. So you always have them. I would say way more intense before I'm about to walk out on stage because it's the unknown. I don't know how, you know, you, you always try to figure it's the house full, is the, you know, and more with, with uh, the movie set. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people around, but when I'm, when I'm doing a scene with, with a partner on film, typically I'm able to zone it all out and just really make it, tiny and little in between me and the other person or whatever. I pretty much just forget everybody else is there. So uh, it's like theater. I'm doing it for the audience and film is like, I'm doing it for myself. 
So I get a little less butterfly on the film stuff. I would imagine it's sort of like a musician uh, going into the studio with the engineer and your fellow musicians. That's different than you're going to go out in front of 50,000 people in a stadium or an arena show or even a small club. I, it, it's a whole different vibe. I, it, to me, it, it seems analogous to that, but it seems like you're really grounded in theater. Do you think that theater, the lessons you've learned from working on the stage carry over to film or do you put on a different hat when you walk on a film set? Is your approach, your method, if you will, different when you're going to shoot a movie or a TV show on set versus on stage live? Theater, I think, gave me the tools to be able to do film, I think, a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Because film, you're constantly, obviously, you're doing lots of different takes, and there's a lot of adapting going on uh, in the moment. Let's flip the camera angle. Let's do, you know. And so what theater allows me to do is helps me to stay in my body. And even though they're going to change things up and do things and maybe switch from a medium to a close-up or whatever, really what it did was gave me the toolbox. And I think that's good. It certainly helped teach me about writing, good dialogue versus bad dialogue. And certainly in film, definitely in television, a lot of the dialogue is expositional because they're trying to bang through a quick episode. So you, you, sometimes you're a character, like my character on Force, a lot of the times appears to get a lot of that exposition out. Like the episode I'm about to go shoot today, I'm at the top of the episode, and it's all exposition. I'm talking about something that has happened. So when you're delivering exposition, the trick is to not make it sound like it's exposition. <laughs> right. When I think of that, and I'm a layman, I'm not an actor, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are, but I love, in a sense, just picking your brain about your process because a lot of people, and I don't know if exposition falls into the category of narration, or maybe exposition could be a character talking as the character on screen, or I would imagine a narration would fall into that category. Some people don't like narration. There's been many a movie where they leave it in, take it out, try it one way or the other, like Blade Runner, I remember famously had a narration in the original theatrical, and then they took it out. How, for you, what is the kind of exposition or, in other words, telling the audience, kind of the, giving them the ground rules of what's going on, or should you just let the audience figure it out, or is it baked into the cake in certain scripts that you need that exposition and it's a part of the movie or the TV show or whatever it is? Yeah, well, now that's into the writing arena. And as a, as a writer, which I've had the pleasure of doing as well, it's a choice. And it's a choice you sort of make early on. They're all tools that can be used. You know, for everyone who says, oh, I hate voiceover, or <laughs> as you were calling it, narration. And I go, okay, go watch Casino and come back and tell me it doesn't work. There's <laughs> four different character voiceovers going and on. And Goodfellas, too. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's voiceover working well because it's like your buddy. You know, Henry Hill becomes your pal. You can't even do Casino without the narration. You wouldn't be able to understand what's going on. I mean, Tamiro's explaining. how. So if you just went with the visual, then you'd have to, you'd have like a five-hour movie. So I guess it just depends. You know, if you like, here's another brilliant use of uh, voiceover watch Badlands. Oh yeah. 
Now, the, the voice over there is interesting because Malik uses it. Sissy Spacek, her voiceover doesn't match what's actually going on. And you realize she's uh, delusional. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, she's talking about things one way and you're watching it another way going, these two don't line up. Well, that's also a device. So you're right. It is baked into the cake. You got once you go with it, you got to roll with it. Um, but they're tools to be used. So I'm never a person who's, oh, I can't stand watching. Right. But there should be no blanket statement, right? Art means being able to do what you want, if, especially if you're the writer. And then uh, how you manifest that on screen or via the audio part of that, whether it's a voiceover or not. And I love that you mentioned Badlands. For those of you who aren't familiar, Terrence Malick directed this incredible film, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek playing a, uh, kind of star-crossed lovers on the run, kind of a, a precursor to Natural Born Killers and California. I've never looked at it that way before. Yeah, I mean, like, and there was a movie California with Juliette Lewis and Brad Pitt that is that similar, but done very differently. All these movies are brilliant. I love Natural Born Killers. I love California, but I don't think you would have those two movies without Badlands. Yeah, for sure. You know, set the stage for that. And, I, and talking about Juliette Lewis, her father, the late Jeffrey Lewis, who many of you may know who are listening from a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. He was the guy who, when Clint was going to get into a brawl in any which way but loose or the other <laughs> sequels, would turn his hat around like with the bill in the front to the bill in the back. It meant it was on. The fight, the bare knuckle fight was on. What was it like for you to work with a legend like Jeffrey Lewis, who I'm sure it was an honor for you, the feature film High and Outside, which is on Amazon Prime and other platforms. This is the movie. This is his last on-screen performance. Is that correct, Phil? Absolutely, yeah. We were still shooting the film while he passed away. Wow. We didn't know he was, you know, not doing well. He didn't want us to know he hit it. Right. But, you know, again, he's a pro. And I get it. He he wanted to he wanted to keep working, but an absolute legend. I learned I learned so much from him. Well, you talked about David Proval uh, a few minutes ago. Another actor, fine actor. This guy's a genius, right? So, for you, is that like you're a kid in the candy store, sort of to have those opportunities to either work with or be mentored by artists like this who are so legendary? Yeah, absolutely. I think every artist needs that to have Jeff Lewis, who wasn't really, I mean, he was more a peer because we were buddies, we were pals, but I learned a lot from him just hanging out with him and being his buddy, you know, Proval, although I met him working on a movie, we worked on this awful, terrible <laughs> Henry Jaglum film that I will not mention because no one should ever see his <laughs> movies. They're awful. <laughs> but he subsequently sort of became my, mentor. So having those two guys were great. And then on the writing end, I had the pleasure of having Nick Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas, mentor me on a script we worked together on. Pileggi, just for those, I mean, everyone listening should know, but Goodfellas, Casino. The Irishman, he was, he was an The Irishman. Movie. I mean, Nicholas Pileggi or Nick Pileggi is an absolute legendary writer. Right. Absolutely. And learned a lot from him. I think I think you need that because what mentors tend to do is simplify stuff. Mm -hmm. When you're coming up and you're making your way 
looking to have a career, it all looks like everyone knows more than you do. And it's not true. Once you start getting closer to, you know, it's like the, it's, I always describe Hollywood, like the scene in Wizard of Oz, they're all there. They're in front of the great Oz and they're all shaking and they're all, you know, but you pull the curtain back and it's just this little guy just with with the levers. Yeah. (laughs) And he's, he's a scared little man, you know, and then you just realize, um, and I'm not saying it doesn't look, I mean, you know, uh, it takes a lot of talent. You got to have a lot of talent. No doubt about that. But I'm just saying the mentors, they just, um, they help remind you, I think, of what you already have. And then what you're missing, they'll tell you. I mean, Nick Pelleggi with writing, the biggest thing I learned was to get over myself. Because he, we, would, we would work on stuff and go, this is, this is terrible. I mean, that's literally what he would say. He'd go, you, can't, you can't write this like this. This is terrible. Even some swear words that I won't say. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have to be able to get used to that. Because if you're going to do it professionally, you're going to even get a lot worse. Especially when you're getting paid and the pressure's on. Does it also help in your confidence building for yourself to have a mentor who, while it may hurt your feelings when they say that's terrible – but that's organic and real and authentic. So then when somebody like Nick Pelleggi says to you, Phil, this is great. And that builds your confidence and you keep going down that path. Yeah. Because you know, they're not going to lie to you and they're not going to mince words. And they have been with the greats, you know, Pelleggi I've been with on this thing, this, this script, Sakura's on it too. Uh, but it's a, a script called Lords I'm trying to get it made for years, but. Uh, and that's a TV gangster drama. Irish period gangster drama and uh, about politics, the birth of machine politics in Chicago. Anyway, but uh, while we were working with him on that, he was also working with Sylvester Stallone on a script. And he would tell me a lot about how great of a writer Stallone is, even better than he is an actor. That's true. I think Stallone doesn't get enough credit for that. Right. And that's what Pelleggi said. And I would ask him why, and he would describe it. And And I learned just from listening to him describe Stallone to me as a writer. So these are the things you get that you don't, you know, from these people uh, that you wouldn't normally have access to, but when you have mentors, it's a, uh, it's a good thing. I want to move on real quick to uh, the man in the silo starring Ernie Hudson. I know that sold out uh, houses at the Gene Siskel theater in Chicago, one best feature at the Texas black film festival, uh, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune gave it three stars, and that's on Amazon Prime. Tell us about working with Ernie Hudson, another legend. Yeah, he's one of my best friends. He's a, an amazing guy, great, wonderful actor who, again, I've also learned a whole ton from. Not even so much necessarily on the acting side, not to say I, I can't or, or haven't per se, but you know, Ernie and I over the years have gotten close just in our personal lives, talking about stuff and listening to Ernie talk about uh, going from being like studio hot actor to not working to then having to start auditioning again. Mm-hmm. Parts mm-hmm. Like kind of, you know, he's working all the time now, but he went through a, a, when I knew him, when he did man in the silo, I like to say we got him when he was, we got him when he was down. <laughs> say, but that, isn't that true yeah. for a lot of actors? that there's these career ups and downs. And for those of us who 
idolize these folks and see them on screen. We think they live just a, you know, this perfect life where everything, you know, it's, it's just project after project and the, the, the cash is rolling in and everything's gravy. It's all good all the time. But it seems like particularly in the creative arts and in specific film acting that there are real highs and lows. But I think the perseverance is what I see common to all the successful creatives that are in front of the camera. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ernie was about to get, I mean, at one point, he was like, I think I'm going to leave the, the business. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. he hasn't. Thankfully, he hasn't because people love watching him. He's incredible. Incredible. But again, that's something I learned from him. You know, he just talked about how everybody wants you, everybody likes you, and then there's a time when that changes. Really hard to deal with. Like when he got Ghostbusters, he and Linda, his, his wife, I know very well, were counting a jar full of change on their kitchen counter in an apartment they lived in Hollywood trying to figure out how they were going to buy groceries. Yeah. He got a call and he got paid, you know, I don't remember what it was. It was like $25,000 for, you know, back then. But for them, that was huge amount of money. Yeah. And again, I'm not, it was a figure like that. I might be missing. Right. No, I, I get what you're saying. Somewhere. And that changed his life. And then it just went up and up and up and up. And it changes our lives too, because if not for the fact or but for the fact that someone like Ernie Hudson or even David Proval or the late Jeffrey Lewis, if they hadn't had a break somewhere along the line or an opportunity, we wouldn't even necessarily know who they are because if they gave up, then we wouldn't know them. They wouldn't be on stage or in front of us on TV or on film on the big screen. So it's a gift to us, the perseverance that you and others who are on stage in front of the camera, behind the camera, that bring that to us, we, the audience, uh, we're so grateful for that. But if not for your perseverance, I don't think that would happen. And again, I'm, I'm speaking with Phil Donlin, actor, director, writer, great friend of mine, full disclosure. Yeah, Just man. a brilliant, brilliant actor. No, thank you. And writer and director. You're a triple threat, as they say. <laughs> and uh, he has a great beard and just a great guy. By the yeah. way, this beard's coming off in like two hours. Oh, really? The character, yeah, they, they, they've. Is that a spoiler alert? No, zero percent. I don't. <laughs> I would like, I would like to think that my beard getting shaved is a spoiler alert, but uh, you know, only for my own vanity's sake, it's a spoiler alert. I wanted to talk to you about that when you have to make a physical transformation because let's face it most people are looking in the mirror i'm not saying you are but people are you know they care about their appearance and you know if you grow a beard and you 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 get attached to it because i currently have one now yeah but then they come to you whoever they are the producers come to you or you may be the producer and the character demands that either you shave your beard shave your head gain weight or or lose weight whatever it is whatever suits the character i think it takes a lot of uh internal strength and I don't don't want to make this sound bigger than it is, but I think it is a big deal when you see that actors have to not only transform internally, but externally and then live with that. Is that good? Is that like putting on a, a great costume, changing your look? And how does that fit into your personal dynamic and then how you approach the character? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I totally get off on that stuff. I love um changing my physical actual body as much as I can for the character that for hide outside, very vocal about the fact that I did steroids for that movie because mm-hmm. uh, they really wanted me very, very big and massy. Mm-hmm. 
you know, for this character that I'm doing here, I've been, I've been working out as much as I can and just eating as much as I can not to be ripped like a right. metal rip, but it's just this, this guy's just sort of a, a beefy muscle head kind of guy. And I, and, and whether or not it really ends up somewhere in like jackets and sweatshirts, and, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I feel it a lot and I'll never forget. Uh, I saw, uh, heard Gandolfini in an interview somewhere uh, when he was talking about doing Tony Soprano and he said he didn't really find the character until later in the series when he really put on all the weight. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. He said there was something about that. There was something about, because he wasn't a, a hefty guy. No, if you look at the pilot, yeah, it's definitely not, I mean, you wouldn't imagine that he would become that bigger than life character, both literally and uh, figuratively, pretty amazing. And he said that was really important to his his character. The delivery of everything he did was in the was in the weight, and the I think the intimidating nature of it. Uh, he could just kind of the power that he uh, had in the room. But it's also interesting too. You can have like a Joe Pesci and Goodfellas be kind of the littlest guy, but the most powerful in the room, and the, and the scariest. So I love that that acting process where the physical and the mental come together in a way that the actor uses their body externally and their emotions. They're an instrument. It's like you're playing an instrument. And in this movie, you may be a baritone sax. In the next movie, you might be a, I don't know, an electric guitar, but I can't speak for you, but it sounds like you really dig being able to do all those transformations because it really gets you in the, I would imagine wardrobe can do that as well. Wardrobe will do that. Like I was saying with my beard getting shaved, they're even going to like, kind of, you know, cut my hair again, and they've got it in a certain style. All of that's important to me. I was never an actor. There's all kinds of actors. We're all good at different things. And, yeah. you know, I've got friends that are really big dialect actors. Like, you can say, do this accent. <laughs> and they can just bang them out. I can't. I can do them, but it takes me a long time, and I've really got to work on it, and I've really got to live with it. My thing that I'm big on, and maybe it, it comes from me uh, being an athlete coming out of sports. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up. I mean, I'd never thought of being an actor. It was just all sports. all the. So maybe that's why more I'm in tune with my body. But I've always, like when I went to theater school and had no clue what I was doing, I had no idea what was going on ever. Because that was a new <laughs> thing for me. But the one class I always was into was they had like a body movement class. I was really good at it. That was right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, and I'll never forget it. And uh, acting teachers was like, this is a big deal. Because, the, you know, body, a lot of actors didn't really care. But it was like, I found for myself as an actor anyway, that was always going to be kind of my thing. I'm always thinking about how does this character move? How does he walk? How does he, you know, the character I do on Force, he's got a little bit of a douchey walk. Mm-hmm. There was a question I want to ask you, Phil. Do you ever, when you see the, like you're on set, you shoot your scenes, when you're the actor and you're not writing, directing, or editing, are you ever surprised, happy, dismayed, thrilled when you see the final product? Because basically they could do with editing a lot. And have you ever been just kind of either in a good way or a bad way, sort of like, whoa, what happened? That's so cool. Or that I didn't realize I would look or be portrayed in that way. Absolutely. Uh, so two scenarios. So when I saw High and Outside, I was blown away by the amazing job of the director and editor of that film. For all the nice accolades I've gotten about that performance, sure, you know, a lot of it's me, but a lot of it's them. Mm-hmm. 
they had to sift through a lot of takes and they found a lot of stuff. And, and it's what actually doesn't make it sometimes is what makes a performance, right? Because not everything deserves to be up on screen. When I saw that thing, I went like having a great meal. Without man. You know, it's just one of those feelings. But you're seeing it for the first time, really, right? If you're not a producer, editor, director, if you're an actor only on a production, when you may be seeing it for the first time with no clue, unless somebody kind of tell, but until you really see it, you don't really know. Correct. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, I did a Western, which I will not name. And I hadn't seen the movie and the director was being real secretive about it. And he had a huge premiere I want to say the Egyptian and I went and within minutes of this movie starting, I sank in my seat really low. I told my friend I was with, I was like, you got to get the sleep. <laughs> this thing is terrible. And it got worse and worse and worse. And then they were going to do a Q and a after, and we ran out of the theater and I went outside to the bar area and we were just getting loaded. And, and this this poor girl they sent out said, oh, Phil, they would like you inside for the Q&A. And went, oh, God. And uh, I went back in and I was there for the tail end of it. That's exactly what I was looking for and exactly what I how I thought it might be in that case. Because you're not going to love everything you're in. I mean, no. I'm sure it's the same for musicians yeah. who play on an album and they think they're going to be uh, the lead sax and they're suddenly buried in the mix in the back. And they're like, Oh crap, <laughs> I'm not into this or exactly. the opposite can happen. You're featured and you're like, wow, that's my guitar solo on that. So Phil Donlin, you're on set in Chicago. I'm so honored. Tell us about again, about the project you're working on right now that you're going to shave your beard for in like an hour. And then tell us where we can find you and what's coming up for you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So name of the show, again, Power Book Force. I think it's, so it'll be on the Stars Network. I want to say I've heard October, November. Okay. That's my newest thing I have, uh, I have coming up. I have, uh, you know, as a writer, I've got a couple of shows that I'm writing and taking out, you know, during pitch season here with, with the agent and all that. We'll see if anything gets picked up. Yeah, and that's that's really it for the meantime. And you can find me on Instagram, Phil, P-H-I-L dot Donlon, D-O-N-L-O-N. And then Phil Donlon one, the numeral one <laughs> on, on the old Twitter, the trash site. I follow you there for sure. I follow you too. I'm and I'm sure you have a extensive IMDB page. Yeah, you can find me on IMDb. Just type my name and I, I have no idea what the URL to that thing is. But uh, uh, it's fine. People will find it. Brother, I got to tell you, this has been a long time coming. I've wanted you on the podcast forever. I've known you for a very long time, but I've never really gotten to you know, talk to you in this kind of detail. I think the listeners really dig this. I appreciate you coming on many screens, big picture, my podcast for ComScore. And I look forward to getting together with you in person sometime this year in 2021. Man, I can't, I can't wait. I mean, I'll be back at some point during the summer and uh, yeah, have, have to come up to the house, have to see you. Let's do it. Let's barbecue on the, uh, on that, on the Riviera over there that you got going there. We- <laughs> <laughs> you know? Will do, Phil. Thank you so much for being here. Have a good one. Have a great shoot today. You got it, pal. Thank you. Thank you.